Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt Lesky. I am a cis, white, gay man, and I'm also a Chicago resident. But most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Sam Club. Sam, thanks so much for coming. Would you mind introducing yourself, your role here at Howard Brown, and your pronouns, please? Sure. So, hi, I'm Sam Club. I use any pronouns, and I am the Minor Youth Hormone Program Coordinator here at Howard Brown. Minor Youth Program Coordinator. So, I brought you in because uh, it is um, Trans Awareness Month. November is Trans Awareness Month, and we talked a little bit before I started recording that Awareness months are always a little bit hard to know how to engage with or what to think about, um, especially if you're somebody who maybe doesn't have the identity that the awareness month is promoting, um, or even if you do, it's it's a little bit like, okay, well, what do we do with this? So um, the the Minor Youth Hormone Program just launched last month, um, at time of launch last month, uh, and... I wanted to just kind of uh, learn from you about what the program entails, why we know it's necessary, what Howard Brown's approach is towards youth hormones, all of it as a way to kind of um, bring us into Trans Awareness Month. So I, I guess, well, okay, I have a list of questions, but you said before we started recording that you actually came to Chicago for this program. Yes. And before you were here, you were where? I was in Texas. Woohoo. Texas. So yes. uh, as... Loyal listeners of the podcast may know Texas has popped up a few different times in a few different contexts, not always in the greatest context. Um, to, to, to what experience, um, or I guess what kind of experiences, if any, did you have related to this kind of work in that state? So actually, I still work for that state as well. Oh. Um, so I actually work for a nonprofit down there called Out Youth that I specifically work with. Uh, LGBTQIA plus youth. And in particular, I do lead the gender identity group for all the teens in Texas. So gotcha. so you're doing double duty. Correct. Um, and yeah, the situation in Texas is very, very different from up here, mm-hmm. which I will say is very relieving as a person yeah. to be here now. I bet. I, out of curiosity, not that it matters, have you... Um, kept like your voting registration there or anything or do you, or you switch it to here? Oh, I absolutely curious. kept that just so I could simply cast my vote for this final election before they make me register as a Chicago human. I have the same thing. I uh, am registered in Michigan still and my vote, uh, Michigan's a little bit more purple than Illinois is. Mm-hmm. So I'm always like, let me just keep that there. Uh, kind of off topic, but um, so, you, so you're doing the most in both states Um this also wasn't on the list, but what uh, what led you to um, to work in this field in, in a healthcare nonprofit specifically dealing um, with gender identity? Yeah, so I actually started off doing residential care and doing direct work with folks. And I, from that point, started realizing there's so many gaps, especially in regards to uh, youth that identify within the LGBTQIA plus um, community and even further so transgender youth. Um, and so from there, I went on to get my social work degree. That way I could do kind of whatever I wanted and managed to get into a niche population without youth, like right out the bat. Um, and 
was kind of able to be the human that, you know, I needed mm-hmm. when growing up and was able to, you know, I guess just give back in that very specific way and from like a way that um, I guess can come from, you know, a gender fluidity adult doing yeah. adulting in a productive manner. Yeah. I loved the way you phrased like being the adult that you needed because that I, I always ask that question of like what leads you to work in this role of all the Howard Brown people um, that I speak to. And it's always some variation on that of like, we've always known this was a need either because, you know, you know, we've, we have this need or we had this need growing up or we we're close to people that had this need growing up. So we stepped up to fill that, which I always think is so admirable. And I, I love, I love hearing that from people. So fast forward all this time, you are here in Illinois now, and um, we just launched the minor youth hormone program. So walk me through what that is in reader's digest form. Sure. Or non-readers, I just swore we got time, so whatever you Okay, <laughs> so essentially the Minor Youth Hormone Program works with youth and their families to get them connected to gender-affirming hormones. Uh, we are taking a holistic approach to this, meaning not only can the youth kind of get, I guess, individualized therapy and care, but we are also now offering it up to the parents. Um, just as we're seeing that sometimes there are situations in which youth aren't able to get the support for hormones for one reason or another. And so at this point we figured, well, we would rather also support those parents. So at least maybe we can take some steps towards, um, I guess, acceptance and a little bit more comfortability for this youth. So not only are we doing hormones, but we're kind of adding in some other elements to, fully support that youth. Yeah. I love that holistic approach. That's something Howard Brown really practices across a lot of things, but, um, it, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it because, you know, and, and I also, I guess a little bit apply that approach to this podcast where like the information I'm disseminating isn't news to any of the people, you know, whose identities I'm talking about, whether, you know, it's, it's trans youth or housing insecure people or anything, but we're, we're here to bring up that information and that support and that knowledge to the people that surround those people with those identities. So, you know, it's a trans youth parent, it's people that are close to people who, who may have those various needs that are sometimes hard to talk about. So, um, that makes so much sense that we're bringing parents or, or guardians or, or adults in on the conversation to kind of support that. So, um, I know the program just launched. Do you know, and and you're also relatively new along with it, do you know what kind of work Howard Brown was doing in this area before we had this official program? Or to that end, before this program existed, was there anything else in the city comparable? Yeah. So actually, this is also not the first time Howard Brown has done this program. So Howard Brown has tried to do this twice prior. Um, and just for, I guess, various reasons, mostly I'm going to say the bureaucracy of it all, um, kind of weren't able to do it in the manner that they were trying to. So this is a whole new reboot of kind of the same, same song and dance. Gotcha. Uh, but there are other programs offering similar. Uh, we do have, uh, Lurie who has a gender program, uh, and they deal with blockers on top of straight hormones, which our program here, we will just be doing um, straight hormones for the time being. Lurie, you mean Lurie Children's Hospital, yes, right? Okay, yes, just to be clear. Um, there's also a program over at University of Chicago 
um, that's a little bit more research-based, a little bit more experimental, but it's happening. And Rush is also providing similar care. That's good to know that that there's other institutions across the city that are doing this. And I that's an interesting distinction that I didn't think about. Um the the prescription of blockers as well as hormones. Mm-hmm. Um can you dive into a little bit of what that means um biologically for people that aren't aware of how hormones or blockers might affect somebody's body? Sure. So essentially hormone blockers are used for folks that um scientifically haven't reached Uh, Tanner stage two of puberty, which essentially just means you, well, you haven't hit puberty yet. Right. So um, if you haven't hit puberty yet, puberty blockers allows you to kind of take more time. So it just kind of hits the pause button for you and you're able to kind of, I guess, explore more of yourself until you or your parents feel ready. Um, Whether it's the um, puberty that you were going to go through assigned at birth, or it allows you to smoothly pivot into um, whatever perceived puberty that you would like to go through. And you're able to kind of dodge some of the effects of your um, assigned sex at birth puberty. If you do go straight from blockers two hormones. Um, of course, after puberty, unfortunately, blockers are not really much of use unless you are, um, someone that is assigned male at birth. It can help with, um, help prevent additional hair growth, um, regular leg growth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately if you are assigned female at birth, kind of everything is already set in motion and it will not do anything. Gotcha. Okay. That helps a lot. And that's something I had heard it up about, but forgot to consider when, when it comes to this service. So, so blockers really, like you said, just push pause. They give you more time mm-hmm. to make a decision whether you want to, you know, follow through on the puberty of your assigned sex or um, pursue a puberty of, of uh, a gender that's not, you know, what that was. So, um, okay, there's a lot of questions I could take off from that, but that, oh, yeah. that helps clear things up. <laughs> so we just do just the hormones. So Correct. most for now. So most, what's the age range that that generally applies to if we're not doing blockers? Would it be like an older youth or younger? So what's interesting about this, so we follow the standards of care guidelines from WPATH for this, which they just released um, the eighth revision of this um, actually about a month ago, two months ago. (laughs) Depending on when this airs. Depending on when this airs. Uh, And originally they said, hey, um, you can start regular hormones at 14. However, that wasn't taking into account that people's bodies are very different. So some people, some people start puberty at the age of like nine or 10 and that kind of leaves them out of it. So at this point we have extended it out to 13 for the most part. I think we would consider like a 12 year old if we're already seeing some markers But yeah, so for the most part, we're saying 13 is um, generally when we're going to be able to start engaging with straight hormones for them. Okay. That is also an interesting point in that also I feel like as of recently, you know, kids are starting puberty earlier and earlier, uh, especially, you know, if your sex is assigned female at birth, like you're, I don't know, I'm thinking of my nieces in their various ages and yeah, that's. Okay, so so 
13, 14 ish. And there's really no circumstance where you would do anything earlier than that. Unless they came to us and we're already at a point. So okay. like, for instance, if someone comes to us and they say, Hey, we're interested in this and we say, okay, cool. We can talk with you. Um, and obviously you'll need to get like a physical from like a doctor, um, get, you know, I guess screened for whatever stage of puberty you're at. And if you're appropriate, I don't see why not. But okay. for the most part, I feel like folks generally aren't going to reach out that young for straight hormones. They're going to be more interested in blockers. Gotcha. Okay. So, so blockers would be the before part of what we correct. Okay. Okay. I'm solidifying these timelines and and Mm -hmm. times in my head. So, so you mentioned a little bit, but like what, um, what barriers or, you know, forms of consent or approval or whatever do, uh, individuals have to have in order to be, you know, given access to this program? So currently, at least for our practices, um, we do have, I guess, two different forms of screening. We have our initial like phone screening. We find out what they're looking for, how comfortable everyone involved is. Um, One of the caveats to this is obviously um, the minors have, they're able to consent and assent. However, you also have to have your medical legal guardians consent as well. Um, technically speaking, you only have to have one of their consents. However, through our program, we are requiring all just simply because if we have one consenting parent and one parent that is in direct opposition, it could cause a lot of, um, discord for that youth and a lot of turmoil that, uh, we don't need happening. Yeah. Uh, so in that case, you know, we do have to make sure that they understand, you know, the reversible effects, the irreversible effects, the effects on fertility, um, as well as kind of what to expect. Uh, we make sure to do a thorough mental health assessment to also make sure that, um, the youth is in a state of mind that they are able to consent, uh, and making sure that they have whatever necessary support they need in order to be successful, were they to start um, on hormone replacement therapy. And essentially, yeah, after both of those screenings, we get all of our consent signed. We're able to immediately refer to medical. Gotcha. Um, so, so it's just the consent of the, the parents and the youth, and then you're able to move on? Parents, consent of the youth. And currently we are exploring a legal liability form, just so say we do have a situation in which um, – we have a consenting parent and perhaps the other parent has not been around for, you know, five years, et cetera, but technically they still have medical um, say so if they show up. Uh, We do have a form we're working on to, I guess, in a way, have the parent sign liability so that we can proceed um, and not have to worry about any kickback. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, that seems like a, a, a tangled web to weave when you're dealing with, uh, an individual that's obviously old enough to know what, you know, they want their body to look like and what kind of body they want to belong in, mm-hmm. but technically can't make that decision on their own. And then there's parents. In in talking about this whole process of, of getting parents approval, in my head, I caught myself thinking of like the quote unquote traditional mom, dad, two and a half kids and, you know, this process, but obviously that's not the case for every youth that wants to, to explore hormones. So um, what happens if, 
you know, an individual's in the foster care system or doesn't have um, an adult that's able to step up in that capacity to sign off on that? Um, is there any exemptions made or, or how, how does our team navigate that? So luckily, Illinois is badass. And essentially, if a youth says, hey, I need, you know, gender affirming hormones, the state says, okay. Um, and so in which case we just have their, you know, the state, um, whoever their like state guardian would be mm -hmm. and, or, you know, their case manager office, et cetera, whoever has liability for this youth, they would sign the consents to get the youth started gotcha. and we're able to move forward in that way. Wow. Is that, how many states is that the case in roughly? Like obviously Illinois is pretty, um, like you said, badass. So I would imagine other states like California, New York, California, Oregon, some of like the more progressive states yeah. definitely have a similar um, setup. Actually, I believe Oregon actually allows kids over 16 to consent for themselves. Oh, wow. So they're, they're a little bit more ahead of us. Even. Yeah. Um, but I'm not quite sure how many other ones I just know that, hmm. you know, at least where we are right now, that's the state of the things. Yeah. I always, uh, I ask because I've been prepping a lot of posts about midterm elections and things. And so I'm always thinking about the the state of various regulations and, and rules like this. So that's just why that popped into my head. But um, in your opinion, uh, is this kind of approval process uh, enough, too much, not enough for um, somebody seeking gender affirming hormones? I mean, to me, the process with the way society is built right now makes sense. Do I like it? Not necessarily. Um, I definitely feel like youth, especially like for instance, when I think of Oregon and the age of 16, I to myself am like, well, you know, they're able to operate a vehicle. They're able to do all sorts of things. Um, you know, they're able to get birth control. They're able to do different things for their bodies. I would love if folks starting at the age of 16 could consent to their own medical treatment and what they are wanting from it uh, without parental consent. Um, and of course, I'm sure there can be an argument made for even younger, uh, but the way that our society is currently built obviously is very much, I guess, still a little bit ageist. And so, you yeah. know, it's one of those things that I think some states are starting to tackle. Um, but I think that's just really tricky to shift, um, I guess, the focus away from the typical nuclear family dynamic to a more, like, expanded, empowered dynamic. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense where, you know, you're giving kids ownership of their bodies, which even historically when it comes to, like, just, like, typical straight sex education in schools, that's not something we've ever done. Um, so... <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully we'll progress farther down that path and allow our kids to be in control of their own bodies. But who knows? Go out and vote. Um, so this may be a dumb question. Mm -hmm. um, is pursuing hormone therapy always for the purpose of uh, affirming your own gender? Or are there other reasons somebody might seek out hormones uh, that would like be a, a, a valid use in, in this program? In this particular program, I definitely feel like there is some room that it's not always necessarily gender related because, I mean, gender is kind of this weird little box that we've created anyways, right? So, you know, 
I definitely have met youth that, you know, identify as, you know, the gender they were assigned at birth, but they have parts of themselves that they still find uncomfortable or dysphoric. So like, for instance, I might have a kiddo come in that's assigned female at birth, but really hates their voice. And I can say, okay, well, it's at the point now where obviously you're seeking this. They still have to obviously understand that. I wish you could pick and choose, you know, the effects. Like, yep, mm. we can just get your voice where it needs to be. You're not going to get hairy. You're going to be fine. But, you know, it'd be one of those things that's, you know, a give or take. Um, but I definitely think that there are ways that this can be used in just in general, like in affirming cosmetic way. Um, I don't see it terribly often, but it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I, it reminds me of, I saw this discourse which is kind of problematic in its own way, I guess, but uh, discourse about how cis straight people to some degree pursue like gender affirming surgeries or processes and that Mm -hmm. like, you know, straight men might go, you know, undergo a a treatment to grow more hair or to appear more masculine or, Mm -hmm. you know, have jaw defining surgeries. So, this isn't a leap. That's kind of a tangent, but um, as far as like the science goes with with hormones, you you said obviously we can't pick and choose, mm-hmm. so there really is no way to just like I can give you what aspects of you know what what side effects of this hormone that you want and and because what what are the hormones that we're using? Is that a dumb question or like, no, that's not a dumb question. Like testosterone and estrogen, right? Or Mm. is there more? There's so generally, so you have your testosterone, um, which is used for masculinizing. Um, however with that, there's, so yeah, you can't control what effects you get with that. It's all kind of genetics and what modality. So, cause you know, you have your injections, you have your gel, you have mm. your patches. Okay. And injections are going to make effects happen a lot faster than gel or patches. Um, and so you have, you know, these different things. But say a kid comes in and they're just like, look, I hate my period. I really hate it. And it makes me really dysphoric. But I don't care about any of these other effects. We are able to prescribe specific medication to stop periods. Okay. So... But as far as I know, that is the only effect that we can truly isolate. Um, For somebody that is seeking feminizing hormones, so there is estrogen. There's also a uh, hormone called progestin that essentially helps with um, breast development and I guess also aids in fat redistribution for folks. Uh, and in regards to those, I mean, progestion in particular, that one is more isolated to this will cause more breast growth than if you're just taking estrogen. Gotcha. Downside is you have to pee all <laughs> the time. Um, so folks generally are not on it for terribly, terribly. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. I just, uh, science and the advancements made... I feel like probably correspond with where general interest and, you know, uh, priorities are within the broader scientific community. So mm-hmm. we have, you know, 
hormones that do have blanket effects and we can treat certain conditions, but I feel like there's probably more room to be, to, to, to grow scientifically where, when it comes to being able to treat certain conditions or certain, fulfill certain desires for people. So it, to your knowledge, and again, this isn't a question that I posed ahead of time, so I apologize. Um, to your knowledge, is there a lot of research or studies going on as far as, you know, advancing the kind of treatments we can offer or even studies that relate to, you know, how, you know, our bodies tolerate the the treatments we already have? Oh, yeah. No, right now it's actually a really hot area of research. Oh, okay. Um, especially with like, you know, the growing, um, vocabulary and growing population of people that are seeking, um, these treatments, um, it's something that people are very interested in is, well, what are the long-term effects? Mm. Um, how does this affect, you know, people as far as like their fertility? That's been a big, big research topic, um, as well as just in general, seeing how people's bodies handle it over time, whether people are staying on these hormones, whether they're stopping their hormones, you know, it's definitely has a lot of research attention across the globe right now. Yeah. And I like anything else, that attention probably goes both ways in terms of positive or negative attention, which kind of leads to my next question, which is with with the, the treatment options that we have, it, it strikes me that medically transitioning either through hormones or, you know, top and bottom surgery, whatever it may be, seems like a pretty recent medical development, right? Or am I wrong on that? Mm, It's actually been around for a long time. Really? Okay. Yeah. It's just not as, it's not as many people are trained. It's not as specialized. So before it was like, you know, well, for minors, I think it's definitely newer, Mm. but as far as people seeking these treatments, I mean, they go back to the 60s, um, but okay. at that point, you need to be in San Francisco. Right. Yeah. Very, very few. So so the type of like, you know, widespread ability to do it is obviously kind of new. And I think that's an argument a lot of people use or try to use when they critique gender affirming um, health care in that, you know, this is new. You, you don't know what you're doing, whatever. So I guess we can debunk part of that by saying, yes, it has been around for a while and we get that. But the... The part that people really like to play up is that, like, you you especially are too young to decide. And what if you, you know, what if you choose this and you regret it? Or what if, you know, there's side effects down the road, like you said, and, and we're not aware of it? And that that rhetoric, is, I feel like, is constantly used to um, to push back on this type of, of health care. So where, where do we stand on that as a program that offers this? What do we, what would, what do we say to people that use those arguments. So there's many things you say to those arguments. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, it's probably a lot. But it's also something but... that, you know, I guess at this point I've heard a lot of. Um, and I mean, there's many things about this. So we also used to never talk about mental health at all. You know, like we would just be like, oh, this person's dead. But that's not always the case. Um, so, you know, people now can say, oh, there's depression, there's this, there's that. There's so much more vocabulary and people are getting, they're feeling safer and they're able to now put words to what they're experiencing. Um, and as far as people saying, you know, how do we know this is real? I always like to ask cis folks, um, have you ever just asked yourself like, Hey, am I cis? 
And the answer is generally no. They're just like, yeah, no, I'm just cis. I'm like, cool. You didn't ask yourself. If I gave you a button right now and I said, hey, if you hit this button, you can wake up tomorrow as this opposite gender or as someone that can like change their gender at will, would you do it? And you just stay that way. And they're like, no. I'm like, Mm -hmm. cool. That's not going to be the same answer that I get from somebody who is gender diverse. Um, There's also, you know, the argument that, yeah, folks are young. But also many of these people right now, a big myth out there is that people are accessing surgery under the age of 18. Mm. This is like 97% not the case. Uh, most people, one, cannot afford that. It's it, As adults, you also cannot afford this. Mm. Like It's ridiculously cost prohibitive. Um, two, most folks aren't there yet. Um, as far as surgeries that might happen, top surgery might happen for someone that assigned female at birth, but it will happen in the later teens. It's not something that happens to quote unquote children mm-hmm. and bottom surgery absolutely positively never happens um, for anyone under the age of 18. Generally, honestly, not even for people under the age of 25 um, because once again, cost recovery, et cetera. So that's something that I think is out there that is pretty particularly like really harmful because people are like, oh my gosh, they're making these crazy permanent changes. And that's not exactly the case. Um, as far as changes that are permanent, so obviously if you are assigned female at birth, you are on testosterone, your voice drops, it's never going to go back. Um, if you are assigned male at birth and you're on estrogen and you experience some chest growth, some of that will never go back. However, it's also one of those things that everything else, if you were to stop, which you can stop at any time, it will go back. Mm. And it's also one of those things that you understand at that time, you know, this is something that feels good right now. It's just like, you know, people like different things at different points in their lives. We're not static. People always change. And I feel like sitting there worrying about whether you're going to change or not is a waste of your time yeah. and energy because you're going to, whether or not it's going to be that way or not. And if you're dead set on saying the same forever, well, I'm a little bit worried about you. Um, but also, you know, there are wonderful, wonderful effects and research that backs the fact that if youth have access to these hormones that they're wanting, their mental health drastically like increases in quality. Their suicidality goes down by at least 50% at this point. Um, Mm. Even if you use the correct name and pronouns, like you can slash your suicidality numbers like down to, you know, 30% Hmm. rather than unfortunately our current rate, which is 54. Yeah. Um, And so it's also, it's just life saving care. So it's one of those things that I like, at least in settings I was in previously, I advocate as this is life-saving. You know, generally what brought parents to me prior is, hey, my kid has attempted suicide at least once or twice at this point, and what can I do? And I say, hey, here are some really easy things you can do to slash those numbers. Mm. Um, I know it sounds weird. I know it doesn't always make sense, but at the end of the day, they're going to be okay. And if for whatever reason they start these hormones, they don't feel right, they don't like them, you can stop. It's not, you know, a ride you're strapped into and all of a sudden you have to stay on this ride the rest of your life. Yeah. 
Who you made so many good points, and I was trying to take some notes of things that I want to revisit. So, mm-hmm. um, the first is that I think it's interesting that we talk about gender affirming healthcare in terms of a binary, mm-hmm. uh, and we always assume that like if you're not going to be one, you're going to be the other, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess is you know. <laughs> For the purpose of the general public, at least we're talking about it. But, you know, for those of us that are involved or, you know, in proximity to this kind of work, what what does. Because trans itself is does trans as a term kind of enforces a binary a little or is that a stretch like trans means to me like. I don't know. Is it that can a, like because there's. Do you know what I mean with that? Like that, like we're implying in a way that you know you're switching categories, kind of, as opposed to like a moving a needle. I don't know. Right in a way, because it. I think it's like one of those things where you think of like they're cis and not cis, and in mm-hmm. a way that is itself a binary. That's what I mean. Yeah. Um, and you know, then you have like your regular stupid gender binary. When yeah, in reality, it is a spectrum, which can also be really confusing for people that grew up in a very binary you're either this or that world and so that is something that I also have seen many times is you know non-binary youth that you know their gender expression may not be in alignment with like the pronouns they use Mm -hmm. or it might vary and parents feeling like oh well does this invalidate this other piece of themselves when in reality you hold all these pieces yeah. Um, and there might be parts of care that you seek and parts of it that you don't seek. And that's okay. But I think that's a whole other level of exploring with folks and the fact that it is an entire spectrum and that the care that goes into it also has to be mindful of it's not all or nothing. Yeah. Thank you for sorting out that jumble of a question statement that I had because yeah, you, artic- you articulated it perfectly. Like it's a whole different level of exploring a gender that, you know, some people when they think about trans healthcare, healthcare maybe don't don't think about. So I I wanted to touch on that. The other thing, um, when people make that argument that you know kids aren't ready to to transition, you obviously said you know you can you can stop things. You know you can get off the ride at any point. Um, but I, I, in most cases, do you find that? kids that are seeking out gender affirming hormones are, have already transitioned or are already using pronouns and already have made, or at least attempted to make changes in the rest of their life that fit with that. So it's not like they're like leading with hormones and then going to change everything along with that. Or, or is it, is it, does it vary person to person? It honestly varies. Cause I have some youth that, you know, the only people that might know might be their family mm. directly who obviously are there with them. Um, because in their mind, um, and it's something that, you know, this is one of those things that you kind of have to work through. They're like in this mindset where they can get these hormones, they can start looking the way they want to look with the hormones. And then they don't have to worry about being perceived as something they're not past that point. Because otherwise there's sometimes this thought process of, oh, well, if I tell everybody that my pronouns are different, my name is different, and then people look at me, but I don't fit the part, it feels worse to some oh. folks. But at the same time, that also brings up 
the like what I call the made up trans hierarchy in which is it's bullshit. It doesn't actually exist, but people, especially folks um, that are trying to qualify people as being trans enough, et cetera, gender diverse enough, you know, assume, Oh, in order to be like this, you have to identify in this way. You have to use these pronouns. You have to have medical treatments, et cetera, when that's not at all the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and it kind of also brings in the term passing in which case that's also one of those terms that like, it's nice, but it's also not exactly always realistic. And it brings up kind of like these expectations that sometimes we have to push back against of, Hey, sometimes like hormones, yeah, they're going to help, but they might not do all of these things for you, especially when you're a minor, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, managing expectations and those conversations sometimes really suck to have. Um, but yeah, other times people, yeah, have already done literally everything else. They're like, I'm Mm -hmm. out to everybody. Everyone knows my name. They know my pronouns. Now it's just this last piece of the puzzle to, so I can feel whole. Um, and so, yeah, there's just, it varies from person to person. It, strikes me that this is a very personalized and not um i say not standardized but that sounds bad but like uh, i guess not standardized area of medicine in that i you know if you think of uh an er doctor you have mm-hmm. a broken bone you fix it sure uh if this seems like an incredibly personal and and you know, intentional area of medicine where you have to really know who uh, your patient is, what their desires are, where they're at in their process, what their end goal is. And, you know, to use that comparison of an ER doc, they, you know, fix first and they'll talk to their patient after. Uh, And this is all the, feels like all the work is done on the front end to make sure everybody's on the same page. So, it's just wild to me how both are under the umbrella of medicine, but are so starkly different in the way that they relate to to patients and things. So I, I just think that's an interesting um, comparison to make. So we're this is such a fascinating episode, but we're getting close in time. So I have two more questions, mm-hmm. and then we'll round it out. Um, you touched on it earlier, but the the cost of of all of this obviously we know that the actual operations themselves that people may or may not choose to undergo are incredibly expensive and that cost is very prohibitive to Mm -hmm. most people um but obviously i'm sure hormones are not without an expense either so what resources um what funding from the government or otherwise do youths have if they're trying to pursue this so Luckily, once again, Grace, uh, state of Illinois, <laughs> um, they cover hormones even on their Medicaid. Oh, wow. So essentially anyone that has Medicaid or I know Howard Brown personally takes many, many different insurances. I know we do provide some vouchers um, for hormone care. It's, you know, a lot less cost prohibitive through us in particular, um, especially because we are technically like a like nonprofit hospital in certain aspects. Um, blockers, unfortunately, are generally not covered by insurance mm. and they get 
very expensive, which is also why it's one of those things that it's harder to get a hold of, even though it might make your transition smoother. Are you able to put a number on uh, what, you know, six months of blockers might cost somebody? I unfortunately am not, okay. just simply because we don't, yeah, I haven't we don't deal with that. had to deal with them. Um, but I do know that other agencies that do prescribe blockers within the Chicagoland area will technically send it through Howard Brown Pharmacy so that mm. we can do them cheaper. Gotcha. Do I know what cheaper means? No. Do I want to know? Kind of, because I'm nosy. <laughs> but, you know. Okay. Um, yeah, because I I mean, obviously the cost of healthcare is extraordinary uh, in this day and age and in this country, regardless of whether or not it's a very normal standardized, you know, treatment or, or whatever it might be. So I was just curious if hormones uh, fit with that pattern or if they were even above and beyond. But um, that's good, at least that our state will, will cover people under this and Howard Brown exists to kind of uh, buffer when when the state can't. So um, last question and a half. Um, I always approach these podcasts with a, all podcasts, not just Awareness Month podcasts, with the lens that, you know, I'm trying to to, to describe this this healthcare topic to like, I'm from Southwest Michigan, uh, so very small town religious, well-meaning, but very, very narrow, well, mostly well-meaning, uh, very small worldview, so to speak. Uh, and with, with that audience in mind, how do we further normalize and promote this kind of gender-affirming healthcare as life-saving and as uh, necessary and in addition to that, how do we, what, what practices can we put in place in our everyday life to make sure that um, people of all gender identities feel welcome and encouraged to, to pursue the life they want to live? That's a long yeah. two-part question, but. I mean, but once again, familiar with this territory yeah. of small, generally well-meaning, yeah. generally, generally, but, um, you know, might not quite understand. Yeah. And the way that I kind of always thought of it as, you know, is simply at least in regards to the youth providing that advocacy, whether it's through the school board meetings, you know, to try to bring in, you know, more wholesome sex ed or, you know, even just bring in a conversation around gender, um, whether it's advocacy with your local, you know, politics or your state politics or your national politics mm -hmm. it's really important to put a voice out there but to also make sure that like you know you're able to provide some solid education and research around it and that way also like that burden is not put on these youth because mm -hmm. it shouldn't be on them to you know make the world a better place honestly it's kind of more the adults that should be shouldering that. Um, and I think also just always approaching things, you know, my social work brain turns on and I generally approach things as, you know, people may not always understand and we can find a middle ground and meet you where you're at as long as you're willing to be open and expressing that, like, I'm open to hearing what you have to say. Am I going to agree with you? Who knows? Are you going to agree with me? Who knows? But we can always advocate for mutual respect, even if you don't understand. Um, and yeah. if I don't understand you. 
And as far as what people can do in their like everyday lives, I think the biggest way that I have seen to make people that are gender gender diverse um, more comfortable is using your pronouns. Like the second you go to someone and you say, hi, you know, I'm Sam, I use any pronouns. If that person is any kind of gender diverse, their eyes are going to light up and they're going to feel like 15 times safer with you. Um, And that can be used in all contexts. Everybody technically has a pronoun, unless of course you don't use your pronouns, which can happen (laughs) y'all. But most people are going to be able to tell you their pronouns. And I think that is like the first, very first step. And it also kind of in a way sets in place like, okay, if this person maybe is expressing their gender in a different way than what their pronouns are, at least now you know how to refer to them. Mm-hmm. And that creates a world of difference. Yeah. I I love those little baby steps. And I and I love asking that question because, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people I know in my life when I came out that, which obviously coming out as a cis white gay man is not anywhere similar, but there's a lot of people that, you know, are well-meaning, but don't know how to like alter their behavior to make people feel welcome. Or they're scared if they do, they'll offend somebody in some way. Uh, And that, that attitude people have that are outside of the, the queer umbrella that transcends all of it, whether it's, you know, um, sexuality or gender or, you know, any kind of identity, there's always that, um, fear of from other people that they're like worried that they're gonna uh say the wrong thing so I love the idea of just leading with pronouns because it it really just opens the door of like I'm here for whatever and I mean even if you mess up I think it's one of those things that people can put forth like you know you're trying and I think trying means a lot huge and so like of course you know if you've known someone your whole life and all of a sudden they tell you a new names and new pronouns it's gonna take a sec yeah and that's okay mm-hmm. as long as you're trying. Yeah. And as long as, you know, you're not saying it with malice. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, you know, folks are worried about messing up. Like, yeah, it can be scary to mess up. But if you mess up and then you correct yourself, that means they more. know that you heard them. Yeah. And they're going to respect you that much more. Yeah. And fun fact, we are recording on International Pronouns Day. So, Woo-woo. yeah, that's a perfect loop in uh, for that conversation. So, um I always joke at the end of every episode that I tell every guest that we're going to have to have them back because there's always so much to talk about. That's extra true for this episode. Um, I feel like this was just kind of a a 101 on uh, trans youth gender affirming medicine, but um, we'll leave it there for now because we're we're close on time. But uh, very briefly, if you had a moral to the story or a, a nugget of wisdom that you could send out with listeners at the end of this episode to summarize everything, how, how would you how would you phrase that? Uh, I mean, I think the moral of the story, essentially, at the end of the day, is to let kids be themselves. And the more you do that, the happier they're going to be, the healthier they're going to be, the less stressful your life is going to be. And, you know, loving them in all their stages, I think, is the biggest part of it. I love that. I, I, I have nothing to add. No notes. Sam, thank you so much for your time, um, for sharing your wisdom and, and your knowledge and, and your passion with us on, on this topic. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to our episode about the minor youth hormone program here at Howard Brown Health. If you're interested in any of the uh, resources that we mentioned on the episode, I'll include the links in the description below, or you can go to www.howardbrown.org. Thanks for listening.